You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with the EV-focused The Driven and One Step Off The Grid. And joining me, as he does every week, is uh, ITK Principal David Leach. Uh, David, I trust you well and uh, not feeling too bad about your culinary ex- experiences this evening. Well, thank you, Giles. Uh, I am well, and culinary cooking groper, uh, big groper, is is one thing. But I do want to apologise to my listeners, uh, to our listeners, for a, a slight error I made last week, when I said it was uh, five kilowatt hours to make a kilogram of hydrogen. It is, of course, fifty, and it was gratifying to see the number of people who contact me to make sure I understood that error, which of course I had as soon as the words were out of my mouth, but never got around to correct it. Fortunately, Giles, we've got a guest this week, uh, one of the most renowned and recognised uh, uh, energy experts in Australia at least, and, and wider, who doesn't make the kind of errors that the likes of you and I do. Well, no, that's exactly right. And uh, you're about to hear very early in this interview um, that um, I make a, made a bit of a clangor as well, had to be corrected, but never mind. Um, it's a fantastic interview. Um, it's Professor Andrew Blakers from the ANU and um, he and three other great Australian solar researchers have been um, rewarded with one of the biggest engineering prizes in the world. In fact, um, the, the Nobel Prize equivalent of engineering. But anyway, let's listen to our interview with Professor Andrew Blakers from ANU. Dr. Andrew Blakers, um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you. And congratulations are in order. Um, You're one of four Australian, uh, leading Australian solar researchers uh, who have shared in what I understand is the, uh, the Nobel Prize for Engineering, more or less, um, the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering in the UK. Um, congratulations are in order. Um, can you tell us a bit about the prize? Well, thank you for the congratulations. It's a team award and team is where it's all at. Uh, there's no single person who has created an, um, a, a major breakthrough. It's been many, many people contributing So the four people who were awarded this prize were a team at the University of New South Wales and um, they are embedded in a much larger team, which is the global research and commercialisation community, which has taken the silicon solar cell from uh, a laboratory curiosity up to space, out to remote regions, and now a global juggernaut, which is sweeping fossil fuels off the stage. Half a global jogging up, sweeping fossil fuels off the stage, absolutely. And so um, the um, the key development here is the development of the tandem cells, is that right? Uh, no, the, no, the sorry. award was... Sorry, yes, no, I've, I've, got my, I've, got my, I've got my developments and my awards confused, so you better tell us that this is the... <laughs> um, yeah, sorry about that. That's all right. So th- this was work that was done back in the 80s and 90s. Um, 
we uh, there was a group at the University of New South Wales, which was in competition with groups at Stanford University and Louvain University for pushing the efficiency of solar cells up and up. Mm. And we all three groups contributed very substantially. There was a lot of cross fertilization. And um, at the University of New South Wales, the group was engaged in pushing the efficiency from 14 or 15 percent around 1980 up to um, 25 percent by uh, early 2000s after um, a lot of work. Andrew, could you just clarify for some of our non-technical listeners that this, I think, refers to the amount of energy that is available to be converted uh, from the sun, from photovoltaics into, into the actual energy. Is that uh, usable energy? Is, if I'm, is that right? Yes. So uh, a 20% conversion efficiency means that 20% of the energy in the incoming sunlight ends up as electricity and the other 80% gets lost as heat. Uh, it's obviously desirable to have a high efficiency because then you need less land and transport and fencing and support structures and everything else. Um, but you can't afford to pay too much for that high efficiency. Otherwise, you'll have a wonderfully efficient solar cell, which is prohibitively expensive um, and only usable in space, for example. Mm. We should actually just mention the uh, the joint winners of this uh, prize. This is uh, Professor um, Martin Green. Um, and I'm not too sure of the pronunciation of the husband and wife team. Um, Andrew, you might have to help me out here. Is that Ai Hua Wang and uh, Jian Hua Zhao? Is that right? Or did, I, did I get close? Yeah that's, yeah, that's pretty close. That's good. <laughs> that's right. Well, my, my, my three years of studying Mandarin at high school um, almost 50 years ago so suddenly um, proving vaguely useful. Andrew, and so the, the efficiency you got to then was about 25%. And I think the theoretical maximum efficiency, irrespective of cost, is somewhere up around 30% for reasons I'll never understand. Um, the Yeah, it's between 29 and 30%. And the reason for not being much higher is simply that um, photons, incoming light particles with very high energy, um, still only produce one electron and the rest of the energy is wasted as heat and photons incoming light particles with low energy don't create any free electrons because they don't have enough energy to knock electrons off atoms and free them and um, do much better than um, 29% uh, by using tandem structures where you have three or four different layers of different semiconductors, each of which optimally uses a slice of the solar spectrum that you pay, pay, pay for that sort of technology and it's useful for space and useless for mass production for terrestrial use because it's just, just too expensive. And so in terms of uh, commercial use, uh, as we, uh, where, where will the researchers take us uh, over the next few years? Okay, silicon is the the workhorse for both the integrated circuit industry and also for solar panels. And um, so the silicon limiting efficiency is about 29.5%. I think we'll eventually end up with commercial cell efficiencies of 26 or 27%, maybe around about 2030, um, compared with 22 or 23% today. So that's still 
you know, going up by half or one percentage point every year for the next um, seven or eight years. So we've got a long way to go before we really top out to close to the theoretical maximum. Silicon is a marvellous material for solar cells. It's the number two element in the Earth's crust. It's not toxic. Um, we can never run out of it. it silicon cells are stable. Um, they're efficient. It ticks an awful lot of boxes. And this is the reason why silicon has seen off all contenders that have challenged silicon over the last 30 or 40 years. And there's been many, many. And um, why it's too early to um, write off silicon even against tandem cells. And, and, and I have one more quick question um, on, on, on solar cell efficiency, which is not actually what I wanted to talk about today. But huh, nevertheless, we have these two manufacturing methods, I think, which is mono and, 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 and poly. Could you just tell me as a layman what the difference is and why I think it is that mono ends up being the dominant one? Um, so right from the get-go, there's been multi-crystalline silicon and monocrystalline silicon in the solar cell industry. Single crystal silicon is um, wafers uh, or monosilicon is cut from a single ingot of silicon, which might be um, 15, 20 centimetres diameter, metres long, and you, you just salami slice that to make individual solar cells. Um, the alternative is cast silicon, where you pour the molten silicon into a mould and let it freeze, and you get many silicon crystals, not just a single crystal. Um, however, in the last um, several years, um, monocrystalline silicon has completely overtaken multicrystalline silicon and is now completely dominant, simply because you get a higher efficiency. Um, it, it's simply better. Hmm. Um, Andrew, I've got a couple of other solar questions before we move on to other things. I mean, just to sort of clarify too, the work that you did with the uh, with the rest of the team and, and, and one of the reasons that you're sharing this prize is that this technology that you developed, this sort of technique, um, really has become the global standard, hasn't it? I mean, it's, I think it's 90% of of, um, of um, solar modules this, this, this technology is used. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And, and I just read the other day, you mentioned tandem cells. There's been a latest development, I think, from ANU, from another team, um, about uh, new efficiency uh, achievements in tandem cells and things like that. Australia, for so long, was the world's you know, leading place for sort of solar um, research and engineering and things like that. Does it still have that, um, well, I mean, you say cachet, but does, is it still doing, is it still leading the world in, in, in terms of um, solar research? That's certainly true. We have two strong teams at um, in Australia, the team at ANU and the team at the University of New South Wales. And they're, they're both uh, world-class teams and they both um, produce world-class results and people take notice of what happens at ANU and at Uni of New South Wales. Mm. Um, it has been the leading country in many respects, um, not least the fact that Australia is now generating twice as much solar energy per person as any other country, which is really quite extraordinary. It is really, isn't it? Yeah. And we've got the, um, I think the current government's got a, like a 30-30-30 target um, to, to bring the, the, the cost of solar down even further. Martin Green's talking, talks about, um, you know, um, you know, uh, 10 cents uh, or $10 a megawatt hour solar. I guess that's one cent a kilowatt hour. It's sort of dirt cheap solar. I mean, what are your sort of forecasts? I mean, how low can the cost of solar go? Um, and how quickly can we sort of achieve those sort of things? And, and how dominant do you think it will be um, in, the, um, in the future energy mix? 
Well, I don't know about $10 a megawatt hour. That, that's, that would be lovely if we got there. But we don't even need to get anywhere near $10 a megawatt hour to um, be completely dominant. Uh, $20, $30 a megawatt hour um, completely sweeps the board against any other technology apart from wind. Um, it wipes fossil fuels out of the global economy. And uh, I think it's highly likely that we will um, be in that range um, by 2030 in many places in the world. Mm. Um, it's um, probably now probably a time. David, um, you've got a few questions about, well, actually, maybe I'll well, sort let, of let, let, let's, keep, keep. let's uh, so I wanted to uh, think about this. There's so many different elements because I remember in the United States a few years ago, they had um, in the Obama administration, they had a, like a, a, I think it was a sunshot uh, idea to reduce the cost to a dollar. And that, that's the kind of um, government policy and support that I think is appropriate in the market economy. But I didn't want to get sidetracked onto that. Uh, what I wanted to talk about is that in more recent years at, uh, in you, Andrew, it seems to me that you have been focusing much more uh, on system stuff uh, like 100% renewables, whether it's for Australia or Japan or Indonesia. Um, firstly, am I right in thinking that? Um, yes, that's certainly true. I'm, I'm looking uh, less, much less at making solar cells on the lab and much more on how we deal with 100% renewable energy futures. And uh, the thrust of that work has been to have a mixture of uh, solar and wind to provide the bulk energy and the firming to be done by pumped hydro occasionally linked up by in Australia at least by DC cables but uh, is you, you know and now I think you're sort of modifying your approach to include a bit of hydrogen for the firming and sometimes some um, even batteries although you're still cautious on the cost outlook. Um, our batteries are an essential part of the element. Short-term energy storage is all batteries. That's you know, sub-seconds up to a few hours. And um, pumped hydro is a few hours to a few weeks, and they fight it out in the middle there. So um, it's horses for courses. And transmission, strong interstate transmission is really important because you hugely smooth out local weather and demand if you connect all the states. So we, we've done studies which show that if each Australian state went it alone, you need five times more storage compared with the case where you have strong interconnection from Queensland to South Australia and everywhere in between. Yes, I, I think this is a message that's uh, getting lost. It's a message that's clear in the ISP, uh, Integrated System Plan, that AEMO produces, which is a transmission document in the first instance. But with each of the individual NEM regions, um, uh, focusing on their own plans, it kind of gets lost. But before we get back to Australia, it's, it's Asia that interests me because uh, one of the subtexts in Australian energy policy is as, as we switch out of coal and gas to, to move to green hydrogen export. Uh, and I've always seen a number of difficulties with that. And I must say I've been heavily influenced by uh, the work your team has done at looking at, say, 100% renewables for Japan uh, and the idea that there's enough uh, offshore wind and solar resource in Japan so that they're not going to need a lot of imported energy. And, and I kind of see that as a wonderful win for Asian countries uh, because for the first time they can have some energy independence. But I just wondered if you could talk a, a little bit about how you're seeing uh, the outlook in Asia and countries and, and maybe about Japan to start with, because it's our biggest energy uh, partner at the moment. 
I think it's very clear that the amount of international energy export in a renewable world is going to be vastly less than in a fossil fuel world because almost every country has enough solar and or wind to go it alone. Um, some countries will need a supplementation like Singapore, for example, um, and some countries may choose to import chemical um, energy uh, in the form of ammonia or synthetic jet fuel rather than make their own synthetic jet fuel. Um, and it could be that Australia finds a big export market in exporting iron rather than iron oxide. In other words, we reduce the iron ore to iron in Australia and export energy-rich iron. But I think it's farcical, the notion that we're going to be exporting large amounts of hydrogen for energy purposes as distinct from hydrogen atoms for chemicals. Um, and the reason for this is the dreadful round-trip efficiency going from uh, nice solar wind-generated electricity through electrolysis to make hydrogen, then compress it and transport it and store it and then um, send it to Japan and then turn it back into electricity or motive power in a car, you throw away three quarters of the energy, three quarters. So you've just tripled the price of, of your energy. And although Japanese sun is not as good as Australian sun, it is not three times worse by any means. And um, you know, Japan has enormous offshore wind resources and enormous opportunity for agri-solar um, so that it, it really can be self-sufficient, even in a densely populated country like Japan. Indonesia is another interesting country, very densely populated. Some people have speculated that 100% renewable Indonesia means they've got to cut down vast swathes of rainforest to host the solar cells. Well, not so. Indonesia is a tropical archipelago. You don't get tropical, you don't get tropical storms in, uh, in the tropics, actually. And we've identified vast areas of um, seascape in the uh, Indonesian inland sea, which never sees, sees uh, waves more than four metres, never has wind stronger than 15 metres per second. And there's actually enough of that type of um, seascape to power the entire world, not just Indonesia. So really Indonesia and um, other tropical areas uh, can also become perfectly self-sufficient without chopping down any trees. And just mention a little bit about this agri-solar. Agri uh, I'm not, uh, I think I know what you mean, but just tell me what, so I actually do know. Yeah, it's a, it's a very simple concept, of course, that um, you simply um, put the solar panels uh, rows a little bit further apart than you might otherwise in order to let sunshine through and you graze animals or you grow crops in between. Some crops like rice don't like to be shaded. If you shade 10% of the rice crop, you lose 10% of the rice crop, which is not very good. But a lot of horticultural um, crops uh, actually increase production when you provide partial shading. And um, it's becoming fairly clear that pasturing um, also benefits from uh, the shade provided by um, widely spaced solar panel rows. Um, and so it's a win-win. The solar company gets free lawn mowing and free inspections and, um, and uh, monitoring. And the farmer gets leasing fees uh, in, in for long term from hosting the solar panels. So it's a really good match. I, I, I actually, sounds, it the, sounds like the, oh, it, go, go sorry, it sounds like they also get good um, improved yield and um, 
and, and, and outcomes even from pasturing. I was fascinated to see that um, Ibra Drolla won a, a series of contracts for sort of reasonably, relatively small solar farms in France recently. And what really interested me about that was that the, um, the, the contract, the offtake agreement, was actually based more or, or focused uh, or structured in a way that focused more in improving crop yield and pasturing outcomes for the farm than it was on increasing the output from the solar farm. So they actually found a way to sort of, okay, we're going to sort of um, space, do whatever you're doing, I suppose, by spacing them further, further apart. But the focus was really about improving farming yield um, with the added bonus of um, having energy produced locally. Right, so it's a, it's a match made in heaven, really, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, David. So to speak. No, that's okay, because um, I, I was up in New England and have, talking to guys up there about the New England solar farms that are there, and they don't have any agriculture on them, and I think these experiments are, are at early days. And, of course, it's you're not going to be putting wheat or corn or anything that requires a harvester um, to be running up and down in those areas, it does seem to me more for um, uh, animals and and um, and vegetables rather than uh, the the crops that we typically produce in Australia. But that that's also by the by. And Andrew, I don't know if you've turned your mind when you're looking at these individual countries in Asia to whether connecting them in the same way that transmission between states and the NEM is an issue. Uh, there have been thoughts about having a um, you know, a, a grid that connects up the various uh, Southeast Asia. Um, do you have any off the, off the cuff uh, sort of uh, thoughts about that? I certainly do. Uh, you don't need it in tropical areas. The reason why you want strong interconnection in Australia, Europe, North America, is that you're not in a tropical region. Um, that means you have a summer and a winter and in Australia, there's typically a, a two-to-one ratio of energy in summer compared with solar energy in winter. And in Europe, it can be four or even six-to-one. In other words, you get almost all the energy in the summer and next to nothing in the winter. So it's really important in higher latitudes to strongly interconnect so you can pick up solar in the in in, in the um, equatorial region closer to the equator and wind, which is typically better in the um higher latitudes. So Europe, for example, strong interconnection through the Alps means that the winter wind can go south and the summer and winter sun can go north. And um, together, they can make sure that Europe can successfully operate on solar and wind. To a lesser extent, it's also important in Australia, we have um, more moderate latitudes in Europe. But by the time you get to the ASEAN nations in Southeast Asia, you don't need to do that because the sunshine is almost constant right through the year. Um, and this is quite different from Australia. We do not need a super grid in ASEAN. Um, similarly, in the Indian subcontinent, it's interesting that they have, of course, a monsoon. And in many places in the subcontinent, you have um, more sunshine in the winter, actually, because the winter uh, tends to be clear and cold. Um, and the less solar in the monsoon summer. So um, what's true for Australia, Europe and North America is not at all necessarily true for Africa and Southeast Asia. That's interesting. And if we just come back to Australia, I, I, the work I've been doing suggests that in Queensland, the wind is uh, still relatively strong in winter. So they have a, a much lower overall uh, 
variability, seasonal variability in Queensland as compared to the south. So it seems to me that the case uh, for having stronger links between Queensland and the south, like why would you have a big solar policy in Victoria uh, when you could have it in Queensland and transmit it down? I suppose it's a, a question of economics and costs. Well, the interesting thing is that high voltage DC cables are so cheap. I mean, you t people talk about billions of dollars, but compared with the cost of the solar and wind required to completely replace fossil fuels, the transmission only adds um, 10 or 15% to the total cost. So very roughly speaking, 100% renewable energy system, not just electricity, but energy, electrify everything, transport, heating and industry. By the time you've done all that, you've tripled, doubled or tripled electricity production. And um, you really uh, are looking at 60 or 70% of the total cost being the solar and wind generation and about 10 or 15% each for the transmission and the storage and the spillage or containment on sunny, windy days when the storages are full. So it's not at all the case that transmission is actually expensive in the overall scheme of things. And are you in a position to talk a little bit about DC transmission? Because other than the link to Tasmania, um, the ISP, of course, focuses very heavily on um, AC transmission which has higher losses, but the connection points at each end, the converter stations from DC to AC, are what add the DC cost, I do believe. But the difficulty is that you can't connect stuff along the way uh, with, with DC stations in the way that you can with AC. So it seems to me that the AEMO has uh, opted for, for AC connections uh, over DC. And I just, um, do you have any thoughts about that generally? Uh, I certainly do. I think AEMO is still behind the game. The fact is that Australia will need to triple electricity production, and they're talking more all about doubling it. Um, when we have got rid of transport emissions by electric, electric vehicles and we've got rid of heat emissions by heat pumps and electric furnaces, we've effectively doubled electricity production. But then when we want to produce um, our steel and ammonia and synthetic jet fuel, we need to actually triple electricity production. And um, it's very clear that there are three places in Australia where you need to go DC. Firstly, across Bass Strait, because undersea cables are always DC. Um, secondly, I think it's desirable to connect Perth to Adelaide, and that's well within current state-of-the-art for high-voltage DC. This is cables running at a million volts um, and transmitting up to 12 gigawatts of power. Um, this is you know, serious power. But the most important by far is to put a large amount of solar and wind up in Townsville, Cairns, um, you know, middle to far north Queensland, because the weather there is very different from the south. And transmit many tens of gigawatts south with the assistance of very large scale pumped hydro in the north, so that you can send solar power down this HVDC cable in the middle of the night. Andrew, you've done a lot of work on um, sort of mapping pumped hydro sites and um, and, and and wind and solar sites um, too. I, I, should, I, should, I should say, and we, we should get onto that work um, sometime soon. But um, are you sort of um, when you sort of look at all the sort of the storage developments and the uh, long duration storage developments in Australia, are you sort of um, comfortable with where we're heading? Are we doing it quickly enough? To I mean, you've said that we don't need to just sort of double um, our wind and solar output. We need to sort of um, or, 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 or 
you know, double the capacity, we need to triple the capacity. Um, are we moving fast enough along with storage? Uh, I don't think we are. Um, but uh, I think everyone knows that storage is the second most important thing. The first is transmission. It's all about transmission for the next five years, I suspect. And just getting those electrons into the cities and, um, and a slightly slower rate, also more strongly interconnecting the states. Now, really, the lack of transmission um, brought about by very low rates of transmission development under the previous government is what constrains solar and wind. Um, mm. But in a lot of announcements at the moment, there's 15 gigawatts of um, pumped hydro under construction or announced by government, and that is a significant fraction of what we'll eventually need. We need maybe 40 or 50 gigawatts of storage, a large fraction of which will be battery or demand management, which looks like storage. So 15 or 20 or 25 gigawatts of pumped hydro is all we'd need. And, um, you know, we're well on track to, well, we're talking about it now and we're starting to actually build the stuff and it'll go much quicker with all the experience we've gained for Snow 2.0. Um, those people will be able to build the next generation of pumped hydro much quicker than Snow 2.0 is getting built. Well, we'd like to hope so, yes. If, if they're um, still and... alive, then, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, you know, because, I mean, you talked about all the sort of, you know, the announced projects. I mean, the reality is the only two projects that have actually sort of begun construction are Snowy, which is entirely funded by the government, um, the Genix one, which is more or less funded by government. It's um, got a huge loan that covers just about um, the entirety of the cost. Um, and I guess the next ones are the Queensland government-supported ones in various parts of Queensland, Central Queensland and North Queensland. In South Australia, for instance, which is already at about 70%, I think, of the last 12 months, wind and solar, um, there's been talk and there's been six reasonably serious um, pumped hydro projects proposed, hoping to tap into various offers of funding from the government and through ARENA and things like that, but they've come to nothing. And Giles, I think it's worth mentioning that all these pumped hydro projects typically tend to be in remote and have a lot of transmission costs associated, almost in, essential just for the pumped hydro alone that isn't always included in, in the overall cost. But sorry, just didn't mean to interrupt, mm. but just to make that point. Yeah, yeah, not, not sure the transmission should be included. Like, that would be outrageous if um, uh, Snowy 2.0 had to wear the cost of transmission through to Sydney and Melbourne because everyone knows that five minutes after the transmission's built, it'll be saturated by solar and wind farms. That's who will mainly benefit from the extra transmission. The South Australian pumped hydro systems were all built um, east, uh, west of the Gulf, in the wrong place. They had heads of 150 to 200 metres. This is really miserable. Head is the height difference between the upper and lower reservoirs. Roughly speaking, if you triple the head, then you halve the cost. It's a really strong um, driver. And just across to the east side of the Gulf, um, um, a few hundred kilometres north of Adelaide, there are heads of 500 metres instead of this miserable 150 metres that was being talked about on the other side. And that's, um, you know, that's a serious head. And the costs there are half what you would find on the other side of the Gulf. So what, what is that? So I'm, 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 um, that's, a, that's a great explanation. So why do sort of who you consider serious players, I mean, sort of reasonably big and well-regarded companies, do what they did and go for some I don't know. Uh, that, <laughs> if you look at the any any reasonable cost model for pumped hydro, 
points immediately to the number one requirement is a large head. That's where you, that's what you go, what you do. If you double the head for exactly the same pair of reservoirs and you've just doubled the energy stored in the reservoirs, you've reduced the tunnel diameter required by a substantial margin, you've reduced the size of the pump turbine by a substantial margin. Everything goes much better when you've got big head. This is and it was just remarkable that so many people are still running around talking about a head of 150 or 200 metres when there's heads of six to 800 metres all over the eastern seaboard of Australia. And, and where, For example... Where in New South Wales does that point you to? Because New South Wales is coming up to some decisions on pumped hydro, I think, fairly soon. Yeah, um, if you go to the ANU Global Pumped Hydro Atlas, you can just look for the red-coloured dots on it and hone in and you'll see that they're all, um, almost all of them are 600 to 800 metre heads. Um, the Queensland uh, Pioneer Burdekin um, proposal, for example, is a head of 600 metres. Um, uh, and there's many, many, many sites, far more than Australia needs, that have got decent heads, six, 800 metres. What, what about the ones that have been proposed? Um, we, we sort of under the New South Wales Infrastructure Roadmap. I mean, I guess we've heard from some of their sort of proponents that um, have they got the right head? Um, the most commonly, no, I, I'm sort of a bit reluctant to name them now, but um, some of the most advanced, um, once again, by the very same companies that are looking in South Australia, I've got to say. But um, anyway, have they got it right this time? Uh, many of them haven't. Oh, dear. <laughs> I think. Um, this can't work. This can't be true. If, you, if you're if you advocating a pumped hydro with a head of 200 metres, and then you know, 50 kilometres down the road, there's an option for, to, to have six or 800 metres, you, you've just doubled the cost of your storage for no good reason. It's just, it's just bizarre, actually. But then there are other issues like national parks and, and uh, you know, there are many other factors that in, in the actual uh, selection that, every... that tend to come in, into it. Well, um, uh, none of the sites in the Global Atlas are in national parks. We, we just didn't look inside national parks. None of them intrude on national parks. The area of land required is remarkably small. So a pair of 100 hectare reservoirs with a head of six or so hundred metres um, can generate um, a gigawatt for 24 hours. Now, that's serious power and serious energy storage. Um, you know, that's bigger than all the batteries in the whole world put together. Uh, just just in that one um, one system. So I think Giles' question is interesting because it goes back to that normative versus descriptive research. What you're talking about is what should happen, and it makes perfect sense, I think, to me, and I, I expect every other listener. And yet, descriptively, it's not what actually is happening. What we get is is Snowy Two with I don't know what its head is, but it's 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 a big tunnel of twenty something kilometres. And Genix, which I can't remember what its head is, but it's, it is really in the middle of nowhere, uh, Kidston. And, and, and as you say, all the other proposals are, are shorter. So it is interesting to actually understand, I mean, why rational people are making those decisions instead of doing what they should be doing. Um, well, the Snowy 2.0 has got a head of 600 metres um, and no new reservoirs, and but a 27-kilometre long tunnel. Genex... Um, has a very short tunnel, but ahead of only a couple of hundred metres, and you've got to add in a power line, of course. Of course, Gen X is more about solar and wind farms now rather than the pumped hydro. Um, but I also noticed that none of the other proposals for pumped hydro have actually been built yet. There isn't a strong enough storage driver yet. The, the market isn't properly set up to reward long-duration storage, and we don't actually need it yet. 
but uh, it's quite obvious that we will need it in the second half of this decade and it takes three or so years to build these systems so we better get our skates on. Yes, and mm. so that's that's the policy thing that I think is most interesting. Really, is do, does does the market provide the, the the policy signals? But I mean, if you looked at electricity prices last year, and even the amount of money that uh, Wyvernhoe made in Queensland, uh, then then I think there is the price signal there. Um, yes, whether there's the right price signal for somebody who's got twenty four hours of water flat out in their reservoir is unclear. Um, I, I, but I think this is, there is a case for this is a natural monopoly. You, we only need you know, five or ten of these long-duration storages. Snow 2.0 will be one of them. There'll be fewer in Tasmania. We don't need many. Um, and just like transmission, um, it's, it's a natural monopoly and needs to be rewarded in some other fashion than straight-out short-term market signals. That's interesting. Um, so winding up, I mean, you've mentioned Australia. You've talked about the fact that Australia's got twice the, um, the solar output um, per person per capita than any other country in the world, or, or pretty close to that. And you talk um, in a recent conversation piece about sort of um, Australia being a bit of a pathfinder in the sort of the development of wind and solar. And certainly, if you look at South Australia, I mean, it's it's, it's quite extraordinary what's happening there with seventy percent wind and solar over the last year. The lights are still on. It's all doing very well. Even when it was isolated from the rest of the grid, it still did very well long periods where we're getting well over 100% renewables over de local demand and able to export that, times when we're getting rooftop solar alone, accounting for all sort of local network demand. Um, we saw last Sunday, I think it was, sort of solar um, rooftop and, and, and large-scale solar accounting for more than 100% of demand um, for five or six hours of the day. Um, the fact that we are leading the world and we are a pathfinder, is that a good thing or is that, um, does that make it sort of easier for us? Or so what are the hurdles that we're coming across from, from being um, such, a, such a leader or, um, or is it just um, mostly reward? Uh, I think it's mostly reward. Uh, I think it's very clear that um, all the politicians in all of the Australian states and territories know that the faster we go to solar and wind, the cheaper our wholesale electricity prices will be. We can get away from being held to ransom by gas and coal companies. I think it's really important that there is a pathfinder um, way out in front. We're solving problems that appear to be really difficult to those who are at 5% solar plus wind combined. Um, it's amusing as well for people like me who talk to um, uh, researchers in other countries and they say, oh, it's going to be really difficult to get to... 40%, 50%, whatever, pick a number of solar and wind. And I say, well, you know, it's actually been remarkably straightforward in Australia. The more solar and wind we've got, the lower the wholesale prices. We don't have blackouts. We've got a stable grid. Um, we can see lots of problems, but we can also see lots of solutions. And there'll be other solutions that come out of the woodwork as we push up against this or that barrier. It's, it's just been marvellous to um, go back over some of the um, papers from even five or six years ago, about how hard and expensive this is all going to be and the trilemma. You remember that you know, we can have reliability or low energy cost or low um, greenhouse emissions, but we can't have all three. Well, what a lot of nonsense. We're getting all three. <laughs> and so, Andrew, I just wanted to ask too, for my final question, one of the thing, objections that used to be raised was around the control system, you know, inertia, uh, frequency control and 
And it seems to me that uh, batteries and um, uh, virtual synchronous machines, that is uh, inverters coupled with batteries, actually provide the possibility for a far stronger and more decentralised grid over time with the right policies, which admittedly are very difficult to, to get. Uh, but I'm only just talking as a financial analyst and reading a bit. How do you think about it? I think there's half a dozen solutions and the actual solution will be a, a mix of all of them. One thing I'd also like to add is that it's quite clear that a solar wind dominated grid is going to be much more reliable than a fossil fuel dominated grid. And the, there's a simple reason for this. When you've got um, millions of solar panels and thousands of wind farms, you can predict with high degree of accuracy how many will be broken at any one time. Um, Unlike a fossil fuel dominated system where whether through um, clapped out uh, um, power station, lack of maintenance, um, an accident or an act of war, you can take out you know, one power station and lose 10% of your generation capacity in a, in a fraction of a second. This is simply not possible with a networked solar and wind electricity system. The weather systems move slowly over the continent. You can see them coming. You'll have hours to days to see a band of cloud with no wind coming across Australia. We are going to end up with a highly resilient, highly reliable and extremely cheap forever long-term energy system. Well, Andrew, I think that's a great way to um, finish this, um, this episode of the Energy Insiders podcast and this interview. Look, I do thank you very much for joining us um, from the UK, um, where later on this year, you and the other three um, excellent solar exports, uh, experts um, from Australia will share in the uh, Queen Elizabeth Prize and um, the, described as the Nobel Prize for Engineering. So once again, congratulations for that um, recognition of, um, of of your work over the last 30, 40 years. It's, um, it's truly fantastic and, and great to see that you've still got this wonderful enthusiasm to, to continue on. So um, thank you very much for, um, for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to say thanks as well, and I appreciate all the uh, leadership uh, thought thought discussion that you, you provoke. It uh, underlies a lot of how I try to think about things. And that was Professor Andrew Blakers from ANU actually talking, us, talking to us from London, where he is visiting at the moment. So that was uh, first thing in the morning. Um, I'm going to blame that for my error about tandem cells and things like that. But... Um, Look, a fascinating interview, actually, David, um, not just about solar and solar technologies and the solar developments. And I was really interested in his observation that solar doesn't need to get down to $10 a megawatt hour, of course, to basically sort of wipe the floor with fossil fuels. But I thought it was really interesting um, as a result of the questions that you put about Asia, about how they don't necessarily need uh, transmission links because, one, they can do floating solar, which is something I've never really thought of, and two, the seasons don't change so much, so they don't need to link into sort of variable things. So um, what did you make of that? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, <clears throat> like all academic approaches, it's sometimes the case that in, in the real world, things don't exactly work out the way. But uh, again, having worked as a tutor for, in accounting for a few years, uh, I do think that it's extremely important that theory, we stand on the shoulders of theory. Uh, in just about everything and the um, effort and enthusiasm uh, that comes out of ANU uh, and the team and, and Professor Blake is, is, is fantastic and 
you know, I think uh, for me, the debate that I continually have is what is the future for exporting energy from Australia in a world where every country has its own renewable energy resource? And I must say that point about solar at the equator was not one I'd focused on enough before. And I'll also make an observation that when you have floaters, floating solar, uh, it's it's um, not going to be single axis tracking. Of course, it's only going. At least I don't think it is. Uh, it's only going to be um, uh, fixed fixed, and so that will have an impact as well. It's great also just to sort of get his explanations about the transition to wind, solar, and storage, um, and particularly how uh, Australia is leading the world, and that is no bad thing, um, probably because we've got such excellent solar and wind resources and um, a lot of hand-wringing happening in Europe, but um, really, um, and he's quite right when you look at the sort of the performance in South Australia, particularly over the last six years, um, just been quite extraordinary. And we're seeing this great north-south divide um, in Australia, highlighted in the recent AEMO report of you know, more wind and solar in the south, cheaper prices quite significantly, um, highlighted in the AGL result today, actually, um, and also um, uh, much more expensive prices in the coal states of New South Wales as Queensland, exacerbated by, of course, the lack of transmission, which could ferry more cheaper wind and solar to those coal states. But um, but interesting and, uh, and and particularly fascinating, too, about his observations about the pumped hydro proposal proposed projects and um, some of their lack of head. Well, I learnt that uh, the Pioneer Burdekin proposal has 600 metres of head. I, I wasn't aware of that before. So, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be the, by far the biggest power uh, pumped hydro project that's currently seriously being considered in Australia. And I imagine one of the largest in the world. Indeed. Well, look, um, there wasn't that much else happening in the um, in the world of energy this week. It's some um, things things have started off quite slowly actually this year. I'm not too sure why that is, but um, I, the AGL results came out um, later on um, on Thursday after we did the interview with Andrew Blakers. Not that we made change much, but um, what did you make of it, uh, David? I mean, obviously the big takeaways was the uh, the 1.1 billion dollar write down, a downgrade of forecasts, and I thought an interesting sort of comment from AGL about how they're going to focus um, increasingly on decentralised assets, um, batteries, electric vehicles, rooftop solar um, from their customers in homes and businesses, try and orchestrate that as part of their 12 gigawatt um, long-term renewables capacity, which effectively translates into less wind and solar, but um, less large-scale wind and solar. I mean, they're doing precious little as it is. Yes, Giles. As I've said on this podcast and written on lots of occasions, really, I think the big gentailers uh, have been ca uh, captured by their own coal generation to the to the point where uh, they have been too slow by far to in the transition, and as a result, they're in significant danger of losing their p p place. They are going to lose their place in generation. They're not going to be the big generation providers. They've already said that. They're still not building any new wind and solar farms to any great extent. Uh, I, I can't remember the last time one of them signed a PPA. Uh, and yet they're at the moment provide the bulk energy, you know, from the coal generation. So they're essentially seeding that position in the market. Uh, which only really leaves them, in a sense, with either doing firming power, which sounds sexy, but in, it's either going to be, um, you know, getting capacity payments for, for a, the same return as you get for wind and solar or taking lots of trading risk 
And if you take trading risk, uh, not everyone will be a winner for sure. And the other thing they're left with is their customer bases. And none of them has a very good marketing strategy, in my opinion, with their customers. None of them differentiate themselves. You know, what's the difference between signing up as an Origin customer for signing up as an AGL customer? You're arguing about a cent or two on price. Uh, as far as I'm aware, none of them have any great particular value proposition over beyond that. No reason to engender customer loyalty other than, I will say, in the case of the big three, they are there when, when, when times get tough. Yes, it's interesting. So I, I guess in that sort of light, it might be a good idea for AGL actually then to sort of focus more on its customer base and try and um, get more firming capacity and um, you know dispatchable generation out of its decentralized assets. Maybe that is, maybe they've decided that that is their future, um, but they probably need more of a strong marketing focus to actually increase that um the scale of what they've got. I mean, they're talking about trying to lift, lift uh, um, orchestrated assets 20-fold, I think, um, from about 160, 180 megawatts now to up to 4 gigawatts. Um, so um, it's going to be a challenge in itself. It's going to be fascinating that, to that, see. That's not much. I mean, I don't think 4 gigawatts is actually all that much, <laughs> uh, really. And we st- they have still have to offer a, a proposition to all the solar-connected households. I mean, one of the other things that's going on is households... You know, rooftop solar is, a, of course, a really big deal. And the question is, once you've got all your rooftop solar and if you've got like EV to the household uh, battery or you've got your own battery, what do you actually need a retailer for other than to provide that firming when it rains for a day or two, if you see what I mean? So so they have to, all the retailers are faced with that. Their best customers are, are, are moving, becoming more self-reliant and less dependent on their retailer. And they have to find a way to uh, make some money out of that. Uh, process that's going on, as well as the fact that the uh, big wind and solar generators are getting bigger all the time. Your uh, Neowins and your Ebra Dollars and your Tilts are all going to be building lots and lots more capacity, and they're the ones that are going to be gaining market power. So, you know, your traditional gentailers have been squeezed at both ends, uh, and, and there's gas price caps, which are, you know, are what they are. Uh, and, 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 you know, some fairly difficult strategy choices and it's not just sitting there uh, with your head in the sand and saying we'll do a little bit of this and a little bit of that is possibly not going to be the best uh, medium-term strategy. Fascinating stuff. Well, we're going to hear more from the other um, big gen tailors over the next couple of weeks. I think we've got Origin in a week's time, and no doubt we'll hear um, from some of the others as well. Well, David, I think that's a wrap for this week. Um, thank you very much. Thanks to Professor Andrew Blakers, and congratulations to him and the uh, three other three very worthy winners of the uh, Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. Uh, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, uh, Evergen and Pylon. Thanks to everyone out there listening. Thanks for the feedback that you're giving, giving both uh, David and myself and the corrections. And um, we'll be back this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future.
Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.